Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian and I'm the U.S. Editor of Waters. <laughs> and I'm joined by James Rundle, our, our news editor of Waters. News editor, the U.S. It sounds similar. Yeah, it's not quite U.S. Yeah. Off to a hot start, hot start. <laughs> so we're going to jump right into it today. Um, next Tuesday, the 17th, here in Midtown Manhattan, we're hosting the inaugural North American Innovation Summit. Mm. Exactly, big time stuff, uh, you know, cutting edge stuff here we're going to be talking about. And it's open to end users. We'll be talking about digital transformation, fintechs, chatbots, chatbots, AI, machine learning. Kind of stuff, man. I'm a bit hot under the color now. I can't, I don't know how I'm going to. I'm gonna miss it. Well, I, well see, I, I know I'm gonna be there. So, James, you're not gonna be there. I'm not gonna be there. No, no, unfortunately not. That's, James uh, being flown over to London to attend our Cell Side Technology Awards yep. and uh, just to kick around London for a while. Pretty a much, week. yeah. I haven't seen my mum in a year, so that would be quite uh, good. But you know, yeah, yeah. came here, take one of our jobs, there are consequences. You know? uh, what, what are your jobs? I'm actually I'm a permanent resident, buddy. I'm, as you said once, after a few beers, America with a small A. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so on the 17th, we have the North American Innovation Summit. Um, again, free for end users to attend. Um, and we're going to be discussing a wide range of topics there. We have speakers, uh, senior technologists from the likes of UBS, Deutsche Bank, BNY Mellon, TIA, uh, Schroeder's, BMO, Natixis, City, Berkery Noise, Worldcon. We got and a bunch of other finance. It does actually look pretty good. The, uh, the lineup of speakers. There are a lot of lot of people uh, from a lot of different kinds of firms, and then obviously vendor firms and the like. So it's going to be a good event. Um, so for the purpose of this podcast today, we're going to kind of preview a couple of the panels, a couple of the topics uh, that are going to be on discussion. Give our thoughts. And see, I guess, how close we come to, you know, the thoughts of actual experts, actual people that know, as opposed to us who talk to experts, <laughs> but really don't know anything. And relay that information to you with a veneer of uh, Yeah, make it seem like we know what we're talking about, but not really. Um, so to start, I think one of the biggest themes of the day will be around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And as you'd expect uh, from something, that's what you kind of expect from the Innovation Summit. But before we get into that, I think it's important uh, to first maybe set up some ground rules um, and in that AI it's the umbrella term for all sorts of strategies where machines show intelligence to use a very generic basic term of mm -hmm. AI um, and so machine learning is a subset of AI deep learning is a subset of machine learning and thus is a subset of AI uh, natural language processing is different than robotic process automation but they all fall underneath the AI umbrella. So what does cognitive fall under this? Is that Machine learning, or is it? Kind of, it's going to be more of a combination of machine learning, I believe. Actually, now I could be wrong. Don't ever throw, don't ever throw me questions that I'm not <laughs> expecting. Uh, but would fall more underneath the machine learning NLP uh, combination right. of the two. Well, there's weird little fusion things in between, which I find kind of you exactly. know, sometimes hard to categorize. Yeah. So, um, so you have that, and the, the reason why I guess that we are hearing more about AI, machine learning, things like that. Um, just I guess to maybe set uh, the the kind of the 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 market that we're facing here, but the there is now far more data available, and that data is not nearly as expensive to acquire. The the cost does come later in how you use it at the analytics you're running the, the yeah. platforms you're building, but the data itself is more readily available. It's this whole big data challenge. So you have that uh, being one pillar. 
Another key one is the cost to store that information has dropped precipitously, especially with the advent of cloud providers like AWS, GCP, IBM, Azure, things like that. And then perhaps most importantly, the processing power, the computing power has increased just exponentially over the last decade. Again, especially cloud, right? In terms yeah. of the ability to it's, it's a combination of all these things, you know, kind of coming together. So gaining insights from, from these data, from this information, it used to take weeks, months, if not, you know, at least hours, but, you know, weeks, months. Now you're getting this information in real time or at least within a useful period mm -hmm. where making the investment and the effort to build these platforms, to get these data sets, you're actually able to turn around that information and make hopefully tradable insights, you know, investable insights off of this yeah. stuff now. And that's a, I think that's actually a really interesting point. I was talking to a couple of uh, guys for a feature I've got coming out next month on AI and use, and its use in compliance and surveillance and mm -hmm. that kind of thing as well. And a couple of surveillance guys I spoke to were saying that, yeah, you know, while the theory and the science has been around for decades of how to do this, and we were able to do it in the past. Previously, it might take us 24 hours to run something, or it might take us 48 hours to yeah. run an analysis on a specific data set. Now we can do it in seconds. So exactly. You know, sort of, you know, Especially on the regulatory front, where you need these real-time alerts, stuff like that. Yeah. That if the data is coming a week later, how useful is it? Is it you know, or yeah. is it, are these platforms worth the investment? Um, you know, IBM Watson, I think, is is a pretty interesting um, use case. Uh, you know, in in that in that regulatory, you know, being able to survey a lot of different data. So it's not just uh, monitoring a trader's email, let's say for surveillance purposes. Mm -hmm. It's not just about monitoring the email, it's about their chats, it's about their actual trades that they're making, connecting all these dots to raise that red flag as opposed to well, not just this. looking at trades that might be suspicious. And not just them, right? I mean, it's about the broader universe, so sort of saying, okay, is trader A, are they trading in a very strange way ahead of releases or whatever? But then also, is another trader or another desk doing the same thing? Or is the trader C doing another thing? Can you yeah. like cross-analyze between them? Are yeah. they in cahoots? Is there some fraud going on? You know, when there's not an easily identifiable kind of um, conjunction point, which a human analyst might look at and say, okay, well, they sit next to each other, so therefore the computer can pick up on it and go, so actually, you know, their portfolio's been doing some weird little moves between each other and counterparties. And, and I think that's one area where there's the most talk about, because it's, it's, it's such an obvious area, surveillance is such an obvious mm -hmm. area for, you know, actual machine learning, being able to supervise machine, you know, teach you what's right, what's wrong, what to look for. It's, you know, popping out results, you saying, no, this isn't right, this is right, and it learning off of that. Yeah. We're still, I think that it might be a little bit overblown in that conversation in some regards. To an extent. I think when if you're focusing on the, uh, yeah, if you're looking at kind of can the machine do it on its own kind of thing, then yes, it is too far. You're talking augmentative, not substitute yes. uh, processes here. But in terms of identifying, so NASDAQ is doing this on its Nordic exchanges and various other companies are doing this as well. They're looking yep. at the alerting and they're saying, okay, well, can I look at the alerts that are coming through? And every compliance officer, every surveillance analyst is like you know besieged by them every day. Most of them false positives a lot of the time, at least. Um, and it's saying, can we apply previous actions onto these alerts and use machine learning to determine whether this is more likely to be something that's of interest to the analyst, yeah. and they should probably look at first rather than something else. And that's kind of a, 
a more nuanced, I guess, way of looking at it. So. Is that what was, because one of the big acquisitions was that of Cybernetics? Yes. Which was in it. So is that yeah. kind of included in that? Is that part of that? So, order yeah, order? it was. It's, that's in it's sort of the behavioral analytics side of it as well. So not just looking at that, but then taking a step further. Um, one of the guys I spoke with today, Nice Axe is doing a similar thing with its Act One, I think it's called, mm-hmm. um, platform where it's kind of not just looking at uh, trade data, but looking at behavioral data as well. And the more unstructured kind of um, market and saying, okay, well, you know, not just um, how is their trading behavior, but also have they stopped taking holidays? What time are they swiping into work? Um, how quickly are they entering orders versus how quickly are they canceling them? And that kind of thing as well. Yeah. All, see if the trader sort of is panicking almost like you know building off that human behavioral characteristic profile and then cumulatively scoring the risk on top of that so okay. um it's saying you know, you know if you trade something that's particularly risky that might raise a red flag with compliance but actually when you look at it there's all these other small little things that on their own might not necessarily raise a red flag but together build a profile of someone who may be a, may be a risk in the future sure so it becomes predictive almost so you know, one of the other areas where, you know, this was first reported on by our colleague, uh, Faye Kilburn, but mm-hmm. um, is how BlackRock is incorporating um, machine learning into the into the firm's liquidity risk uh, unit, and it's using these techniques to better calculate the cost of liquidating fund positions in the case of redemption, something mm-hmm. that was a very manual process and that, you know, required, you know, on spreadsheets, a lot of talking amongst groups. Again, augmenting what um, what this manager, what this risk manager can do. Um, so, just reading from a, a, a story that was written on that, but uh, BlackRock's in the process of feeding internal trade data into its market liquidity model. Uh, depending on the insights gained, it will tweak the system from there. So, that, again, true machine learning, where the machine is learning, tweaking the system, but then a human is also there to override to monitor to help I guess in that guidance of that mm. process um, and this was Stefano Pasquale uh, speaking he heads the firm's liquidity research unit but quote liquidity is multi-dimensional and is impacted by so many features it's highly non-linear so uh, this is a typical use case for neural networks and that's a, a important thing, the non-linear aspect of it. That's where that's the reason why there's so much, I guess, interest, I guess so much potential, because these pieces of information that on face value maybe don't connect, yeah. these can help spot those connections, those those random collisions and alert a portfolio manager, alert a risk manager, alert a trader, alert a back office compliance individual. Yeah, I mean, I think the risk management angle is fascinating. I mean, if you think about how, especially in derivatives, for instance, so, you know, you want to analyze risk on a derivatives portfolio or a series of them, you run Monte Carlo what-if simulations, yeah. right? Uh, and so you examine the degree of interconnectedness and, you know, what your liquidation costs will be, what would happen if this happens, X, Y, Z. Um, if you can do that through machine learning, not only can you more finely tune your P&L limits and everything like that, but I think you can also look at things saying, oh, actually, you're heavily concentrated here. What happens if this market tanks suddenly or this series of defaults happens, something you know, yeah. like a 2008 situation or a black swan, which you may not have thought because it's so far out or so, but it is necess- there's actually nonetheless a risk that yeah. you can end up like seriously out of pocket if something goes wrong here and you can alert it back to that. So not just on a surveillance compliance basis, but also risk management as well. Yeah. On the risk management, on the Monte Carlo simulations, uh, on trying to find black swan events, on upfront, I think that there's, you know, think about then where were the, 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 
I guess the advancements we're making right now, and then even more interesting beyond that is what happens when compute, uh, quantum computing, which granted we might still be 10, 20 years away from true, you know, an organization having true quantum computing where they can, you know, run this on their own. But I think that that's why I think that there's so much interest right now, why there's so much investment in research and development um, in this area. Very interesting. I think it's what's interesting to note as well, and I was talking to, well, you and me were talking to a very senior technologist about this the other day, um, and about quantum computing, what it can do and what it can't do. Yeah. And he said, which I found really interesting, you know, he's talk, we were talking specifically about the, um, the, the cryptographic consequences and you know, how security works and that kind of thing. He said that yeah. quantum is very good at answering very specific types of questions. Uh, ones that require it to think in a certain way. It's not necessarily like good for every single kind of question. You don't need it. Yeah. But um, if you have those multi-dimensional, kind of spatially enlarged questions like risk management, for instance, as great as that, is it necessarily going to be applicable to sort of more binary questions or things that don't demand that level of kind of exponential thinking? Maybe, maybe not. So yeah. it's the first time I've actually heard someone who is 100% sold on quantum computing um, being a little bit like, okay, well, let's just take a step back and think about this for a second. It's not going to... 100% revolutionise human society, but it might have a huge impact in certain yeah. areas rather than every single area. That's on the security question as well, he said, you know, um, yes, uh, quantum could, for instance, break credit card security as we know it. Yeah, any kind of encryption. Exactly. But then all we have to do is update our protocols to the kind of the quantum level, yeah. and firms already started to do that apparently. Yeah. So not quite as doom and gloom but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like how you know in, in some ways it's kind of like preparing for y2k you know firms that prepared for y2k well in advance you know a couple of years in advance i mean i remember my father worked on this in the mid 90s you know getting ready for that y2k overhaul could the concern about it at the end of the day it all went off without a, a glitch there was a lot of planning a lot of worry that happened before that I'd love to. Someone must have done the definitive article on how much money it costs, like various yeah, industries, exactly. in terms of man hours and resources, just for something that never materialised. But yeah, <laughs> just because of a numerical <laughs> normality. But I think um, just uh, on the, the AI subjects and yeah. using it for surveillance and risk management as well. One of the key things that I think I found from reporting this feature, at least, is that um, yes, obviously it can now work because of um, uh, the amount of data, the storage, the compute on demand, all that good stuff. What they're also saying though is that it's now sophisticated enough to the point where it's not a black box anymore. So you don't just put something in, then something comes out again, you're not quite sure how it got there. Yeah. It's actually auditable, and you can explain to regulators kind of, you know, if you, a one person says to me, if you turn around to a regulator and say, this is my case investigation for a compliance breach, and they say, well, how'd you get to that? And you go, I don't know. Yeah. Then you can't use that kind of thing. But, uh, and the same with risk management as well. Like if the regulator comes and says, what's your rationale for risk weighting this portfolio to a certain extent? And you can go, uh the computer said so, then yeah. they're not going to be very impressed. But, um, you know, the level of analytics has now progressed to the point where you can actually explain step by step how the machine arrived at a certain decision. Without so giving away the full black box secrets of it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, obviously, there are black boxes still, I'm not saying they're not, but, you know, the commercially available products are fully auditable, and they say that's one of the key <coughs> things as to why people can roll it out now, as it's not just the magic that happens inside the machine, it's actually, no, we fully understand it and we can document each step of the way and we can present that to a regulator and say this. Yeah. So that's an interesting, yeah. Another area that we're going to be hitting on at the North American Innovation Summit, the 17th of April, Tuesday, I'll be there, James won't, um, <laughs> is that of chatbots and artificial intelligence, now focusing a little bit more on the NLP side mm. of things, um, is making this, I guess, more and more viable. And correct me if I'm wrong, but 
for us, we've never really, we, we've written a couple articles here and there, especially if talking about Asia finance, because they've been mm-hmm. a lot more invested in the robo-advisory aspects of this, but um, we've kind of steered cleared from uh, the idea of chatbots, because it's more of a retail thing, you know, your Echo, Google Home, things like yeah, that. Yeah, it's customer onboarding. And that know, kind of it's, it's somebody calling in about a credit card question, uh, their mortgage application question, you know, kind of an interacting so you can get rid of your... Um, your your help desk in yeah. you know and offshore some of that, but also just make to make it streamline that process. We haven't cared as much about that, but we did have an interesting conversation with somebody say that uh, that they think it's it's actually could become a much more interesting topic going forward for yeah. traders, for people that want to communicate since voice is still important. But now, can you have these kind of conversations with uh, with a computer? Maybe you can delve a little bit more into that. Yeah, so I think that there's two kind of two sides to this. Really, one is as as you say, kind of it's been very successful. Mobile advisory people we haven't really focused on it, but again, the person we spoke to said it does definitely have applications in the trading floor. So if a trader wants to have a bot that can sit there and he can say, "I want the S and P 500's movements over the last 30 days," yeah. can you bring that up on a chart for me? Or, um, you know, I want to contrast this data set with that data set. Can you do that? And then they can bring it up within, like, Symfony or within Bloomberg or with an icon or whatever you're using um, and bring that information presented to you. Then that's one of the re- things that uh, they say could be particularly useful. Um, uh, there was a story actually in Business Insider, I think, last month about, or maybe the Financial Times, about how JP Morgan's rolling out Alexa for its trading floor, and it, it's not. But uh, that's kind of the idea behind it is that you can use it almost as an assistant in a way um, not a chatbot for anything particular you won't go you know execute 50 lots of this price on this exchange or whatever and then they'll go off and do that for you but you can use it as a research tool almost in a way yeah. um, and as a support tool um, secondly I think uh, the interesting point in this also ties in with some of the wider discussions I was having at Boca with a lot of the fintech guys and they're just saying that you're very right voice isn't going away um, what we're finding now is that there's a, a weird little fusion happening between voice and between electronic trading. Uh, whereas in the last sort of five, ten years, maybe it's been kind of like electronic versus voice. One's going to win, one's going to die. Mm-hmm. Now people are finding actually no. Um, with advances in natural language processing, with advances in some of the stuff that people like Green Key are doing, and people like um, cool. uh, Nine and various other people as well, you can actually combine the two and to make it something interesting. You can take conversational speech or even heavily accented. Um, you know, uh, like jargon from calls, your, stuff like that. Exactly, right? from your Eurobonds desk and from yeah. your FX desk, which have very different kind of crayons um, yeah. among them. And you can turn I that. I can barely into, understand you. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. it. Because it's, um, it's you've got mud in your ears. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you can take that and you can actually turn it into electronic sort of machine readable type, yeah. then um, you can do a lot of stuff with it. And you can create context around it and you can link it to reference data points and you can bring in all this information. So, the idea of having a bot that could potentially sit there and you could query in a smart and um, conversational way, and it's clever enough to understand that through natural language processing, through a fusion of that and RPA and machine learning, um, you can get some pretty powerful results pretty quickly. So, you know, imagine not having to ring up your research analyst and go, have you done anything on, um, I don't know, like Exxon or something over the last three months, and you can just ask a bot and it'll just bring up everything for you and just deliver yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I think that, that one of the interesting ways, and, and let's, I guess for the readers to understand that, so much of this is just, it's speculative, it's, it's, it can be done, but it's, 
it's not good. You're not going to see this rolled out in wide scale adoption anytime soon. But no. the exciting thing is this kind of preparation. I almost kind of feel like we're at the kind of an, an advent here of a whole new trading experience that might be far away. But if you take things like chat, which which you know, I use, I have Google Home, so you know I use that a lot just to ask stupid ass questions yeah. when I'm drunk. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have something like that. You're getting used to something like that. So you have that, and now augmented reality, virtual reality, but really augmented reality, you know, has yet to really catch on. There have been instances we've written about it, um, but it's still off in the distance. But you are kind of, I feel like, getting a little bit closer stage by stage to being able to combine this chat with augmented reality. So a trader's sitting there, call up something, it pops up on, you know, his Google Glass, for lack of a better term, whatever it is. And then they also have their computer screen from, and it just makes them much more efficient in what they are doing. Yeah, and a couple of guys I've spoken to, Paul and Cole Walton, that's saying it's not happening now, but they, yeah. they can maybe understand it. I think it's a natural fit, to be honest. Yeah. Why not go and sit down at your desk, put a pair of glasses on, not necessarily a big chunky VR headset and headphones or whatever, but, you know, put your augmented screen and have a heads-up display that can just do stuff for you. It's sort of, you know. Think about how, like, people think that, that, that oh, well, this is still decades away, but think about how you now allow a listening device into your home. Like yeah. you're seeing everything with Facebook going on right now and the delay, the data is collecting. How many people, I, I think Amazon Echoes are in like something like 40% of American homes crazy, right now and that's not even including the Google stuff. You know, that's insane that, and we've allowed that. Hmm. And it it's works, it's real. Oh, man, and so I, mean, I think I, that can, it's I, I bought a, um, I bought an Amazon Fire tablet on the weekend. Uh, when it said, do you want to turn on Alexa? Bear in mind, we are gonna, Record what you're saying, and we're going to send it back processing. It's going to yeah. train her to be better and that kind of thing. But well, yeah, whatever, fine. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So go ahead, just yeah. give away all my rights. We already talked about this, but, we did. Yeah, but yeah. so people think that it is so far away. And yes, we're not saying this is going to happen overnight. This in tomorrow, but this is something I think that we are kind of at, you know, the ground floor of, and that's why it's. I think it's so exciting, yeah. so interesting. Uh, uh, that's. I think that's more than anything else. That's what came out of Boca for me this year. Um, just to bring it back to that because it was the last yeah. places that was key decision makers. You just want to go back to Florida. I just want to go back to Florida, <laughs> but it's cold here. Although it's going to be uh, 80 degrees this weekend, apparently, when I leave, so enjoy that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but uh, the big thing I got out of it was, I think, from talking to a lot of fintech guys and a lot of established vendors and a lot of traders and a lot of regulators and a lot of um, strategy guys is that they really felt that we're on the cusp right now of realizing the potential of all these disparate threads that have been weaving in and out for the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years or so. So whether that's the emergence of public cloud, um, either as a hardware tool or a software tool or a compute tool or whatever, the rise of fintech and what that's been able to do with there, um, the way that our work in machine learning and artificial intelligence is now progressing, the way that we've moved to an electronic basis and we're now starting to accommodate things, they do start to feel that it's all starting to come together like in an interesting way. And you know, one of the ways that was happening is through the OpenFin desktop sure. collaboration, which a lot of people are saying is a real example of that and how um, it's a way that technology and the various approaches are no longer antagonistic to each other. They're actually augmentative and beneficial yeah. to each other. They're working together, and they're actually quite elegantly working together. It's starting to find that you don't need to necessarily replace, as I said earlier, voice trading with electronic trading. You can have both. Yeah. It just works. You know, um, There will be failures along the way because that's just the way technology progression works. And there yeah. are going to be some embarrassing investments that firms are going to have yeah, to yeah. make that they're going to have to back up on some vendors that think that they have a hot shit new product that go out of business a year later. That's going to be part of the natural selection. That's what happens in, in free markets and yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It's fine. 
But um, overall, the, the way in which firms are starting to work now, and, and part of this has been, as I covered last year, the co-option of fintech from being a disruptive, challenging influence to one that's actually a partnership yeah. with the industry. Um, also, the way the industry has responded as well by accepting things at public cloud and being able to yeah. do things in-house, which means they can acquire these people and bring them in and work with them. It's, it's a really interesting topic to see. Well, I think that that naturally leads us then into kind of the final idea here, and again, that we'll be hitting on at the North American Inf Innovation Summit, April 17th, Tuesday, I'll be there, James won't, um, <laughs> is the idea of the both the uh, benefits that fintechs offer, yep. fintech startups offer, the challenges that they present, and the challenges that fintech firms themselves are facing. Um, we're going to actually have a panel, our, our 940 panel, so after the keynote address, uh, we're going to have a spotlight panel specifically looking uh, around the subject of fintechs, but we have uh, Sarah Biller from Fintech Sandbox, she'll be moderating, and then our speakers, we the big old panel here, we have uh, Lucian Foster, uh, head of Fintech Strategy and Partnerships from BNY Mellon, Stuart Carmichael, CTO at Schroeder's, uh, Luis Valdich, uh, Managing Director at City Ventures, uh, Peter Sahalis, Managing Director, Digital Distribution and Mobile Technology Executive at TIA. They like their big names, don't they? Yes. Ruth McQuitty, uh, Technology Strategist, New York Lab Global Innovation for Deutsche Bank. And um, somebody from Options.it is going to be there too. I'm not sure that we've locked in who that person can be at, but we'll, we'll have mm -hmm. a, a, a good round out of people there. This is all to say, as you just mentioned before, cloud, the, the ability to use cloud technologies um, allows you to both do new things and also to distribute your tools more easily yeah. than, than once was possible, hence why you're seeing more fintech firms come into the space. What do you think, you know, what, I guess three of the things that we're going to be speaking about on that panel um, are, you know, the fintech market is very saturated. How do you choose the right firm to collaborate with? You know, how do you identify priorita and prioritize emerging technologies and the startups that are building these solutions? And, you know, so, so I guess those are going to kind of be the main two things. Yeah. For you, what do you kind of see, what are you hearing that you think is the most interesting um, I think the most interesting thing in terms of identifying them is that they come to you now a lot yeah. of the time. You know, it's uh, it's not like it's. I mean, financial services fintech has diversified so far away from startup technology sectors. You know, uh, in a very Silicon Valley sense, that they they come to the banks, they come to the residence programs, they come to the incubators and say, "Look, we yeah. want to learn from you. We need your expertise to help us take them to the next level." Um, a lot of the guys who have done it standalone, some of them are still going. Obviously, um, you know. A number of springs of mind, some are struggling a bit. Um, all of them have taken investment from the banks yeah. uh, and from the information providers and from everyone else, and even other incumbent technology vendors. Um, in terms do you think, of, uh, Bonner, do you think, for better or worse, because right now, to that point, it is the banks that are, like you said, they either have their own kind of innovation lab that they're building the in residence program at JP Morgan, yeah. just recently had an announcement of. Uh, that company Access, I can't remember the first name, Access Fintech or something like that, um, that they made their Series A in and then bring it into their in-residence mm -hmm. program. But right now you have, it's the sell-side firms that are actively the ones bringing in and trying this out. Do you think that a couple of years are gonna go by and they're gonna be like, wait, why are we the ones on the bleeding edge of these tools? Or do you think there's going to be a benefit in them being the early yeah, adopters 100%. and bring it into their sandboxes before public uh, consumption. So do you want the deploy answer or, the, or what I think is the actual answer? It's the actual answer. <laughs> the actual answer. 
Uh, the actual answer, I think, is yes, the Soul side is very keen to control this, because um, as we've seen with things like the development of distributed ledger technology, the Soul side has a very vested interest in controlling how that develops. Mm -hmm. um, and it develops in a way that doesn't necessarily disintermediate them from the processing itself. So you don't want, if you're a major custody banker, if you're a major um, you know, retail investment uh, trading bank, you don't necessarily want fintech to take away that chunky business. What you want to do is make it work for you, so you can take the technology that is so revolutionary and get more customers as a result. Yeah. Um, I think the um, also the fact of money is that the sell side has the money at the end of the day. Like you know, buy side firms are there to manage other people's money yeah. by putting it to work in mutual funds and the stock market and everything else. It's not necessarily there to go out and invest in early stage fintech startups unless you want to put some money into a private equity fund or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas the sell side you know, has the money to play with in that regard. Yeah. The buy side does not. Um, unless you're a huge firm with your own, um, you know, I guess proprietary kind of side of things which you want to do. So fine, in that case, if you're a DRW, so, if you're a... Yeah, BlackRock even, you know, something BlackRock like or a Citadel even, yeah. maybe, and that kind of thing, then yeah, you can do it. Um, before Citadel's PRs jump on the phone saying, ah, we're a broker-dealer as well, and then <laughs> Citadel Hedge Fund, not the uh, Citadel Securities, a broker-dealer. Thanks. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the actual answer is what it comes down to is the sell side is very, very keen to control the direction this goes. It's very keen to um, retain control of the way that markets are constructed, particularly on the post-trade side, uh, and on a lot of the pre-trade on the AML, KYC stuff, they're keen to sort of, you know, bring that in-house and, yeah. I guess, where possible, kind of standardise it and uh, consolidate it into utility. Um, other parts of the retail banking side I'm less familiar with so I can't comment on that but definitely on the trading side I think that's that's yeah. the key point here is that well, you know, I just yeah. think it'll be interesting to see you know as these things proliferate do it does more the retail bank get you know more the focus does mortgage get more than credit card does you know and then where does that leave investment banking operations is there a way of falling behind I wonder if there are these kind of this new idea of operational risk in the fact of we're going to be the sandboxes for these new fintech companies. We're going to be the innovation labs for these new fintech companies. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, how much that's going to be thought about. What kind of problems are going to stem out of that eventually? Well, I mean, I think that is a way of reducing the operational risk, actually. Rather than having a, a fintech vendor you want to work with, but just cybersecurity standards just aren't up to scratch, or mm -hmm. it's uh, onboarding processes for customers aren't up to scratch, you don't know who they're letting in, so you can't work with them. If you bring them into your framework, then you can say, well, no. If you want to be an approved supplier for us, then you've got to have X standard, and we will help you get there because you're in our program. Yeah. Um, I think I mean, an interesting side, which you don't really hear very much about, you hear about the banks, and you hear about BMY Mellon and Barclays and all their accelerators, their innovation, their incubation programs. And I know the exchanges have these programs as well, but you don't really hear much about their investments a lot of the time. And they're yeah. the interesting ones, I think. Kind of, you know, They're the ones who are truly threatened by... And this idea of decentralization and by a lot of the things that are going on in terms of DLT and blockchain and everything else. And the yes, the DTCC, for instance, as a as a settlement engine has made a lot of noise about it because it's in its best interest to do so. Yeah. Um and the CME and the LSE and NASDAQ and everyone are sort of like I mean, I suppose they're relatively vocal about kind of when they invest in a company or what technologies they're developing, but you don't hear much about what they do in terms of incubation and acceleration. That's, I think that's a really interesting piece. Like, what are they looking at? Yeah. And what direction are they controlling the technology in that regard as well? Yeah. 
But, yeah. So these will be some of the topics that we'll be discussing at the North American Innovation Summit, April 17th, Tuesday. I'll be there. James will not be there. No. <laughs> and speaking of sell-side dominance, this is actually our replacement for our sell-side event. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> As you'd expect an Innovation yeah, Summit. Yeah. Um, I won't be there, by the way. Just yeah. Uh, yeah. So James will be in London, actually. So, uh, James, you know, we, me and you... We like to go to a little dive bar here called the White Horse, yep. one on Bridge Street, not the one the uh, that Dylan finest, Thomas uh, used to go to. Very finest dive bar in New York City. It's episode. the best by far. Yep. Well, Tommy, shout out to you, buddy. Liverpool, that was a beautiful match. <laughs> um, if I were to go to London, I'm not because you're going. I'm not going. Yep. Um, what would be the equivalent dive bar for you? Where, where, when you were kicking around, where were your haunts at? Uh, so a couple of bars. Um, one which I've now recently had is closed down, which sucked. It was my favourite called the Blue Posts. It was a little bar on Rupert Street, just down an alley, and it was a tiny little place with a big room upstairs, but that's gone. Um, the John Snow, from across from where Incisive Media's old newsroom used to be on Broadway Street. It's called the John Snow. It's called the John Snow, after the guy who uh, invented the public water thing and killed cholera. No kidding. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> so not the Game of Thrones. Not the Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> God, Tony, get some culture. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, <It was> like, <laughs> I know, yeah, trust me, I think you go in there and like there's actually a sign above the SAR saying anyone who says you know nothing will be ejected forcefully from there. Yeah. Um, there's a cool little sort of crafty bar around the corner from there called Two Floors in Soho. Um, and also a bar called the White Horse, near and dear to my heart. There's uh, several of them there. Um, in terms of like actual craft bars, I mean, when I left London, craft beer wasn't really a thing. Um, yeah. It was more kind of like it's now take off, and I hear there's a a Brewdog bar that's uh, in Cambridge Circus, which is supposed to be quite good. But for me, my favourite pubs in uh, in London are actually in the West in Ealing and in Acton, those local areas as well. There's if you go to Acton Town, there's a bar called the George and Dragon, which sells like exclusively continental beers, and you never know exactly what they are, but they're generally pretty tasty. Yeah. Um, there's my very favourite dive bar in London of all time called the Red Lion and Pineapple. Which Red Lion and Pineapple? The Red Lion and Pineapple, which is uh, a Weatherspoons, but my god, it's a marvellous, magnificent place. Okay. And uh, in Ealing Proper, the Rose and Crown, lovely Fuller's Pub, uh, the Red Lion, which is now owned by um, Santa Maria. Red Lion is a popular uh, term. It is. It's the Red Lion and the Blue Posts are, tend to be like, the big ones in, uh, in London. And, okay. uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's probably my favourites. Well, it would be nice if I was going to go get checked those out. I won't. I'll still be drinking at the White Horse yep, uh, yeah. next week. Uh, so come on down and visit me if you're in town. Or otherwise, I'll be at, um, what the hell is this event? This event is going to be <laughs> at the Convene at 810 7th Avenue. This is the first time we've done this here. Usually, if Can you've been to our event, you've been to the, yeah. the Marriott Marquis. <laughs> I look at it. It looks beautiful inside. I'll be interested. It looks a bit of a, like Convene at 810. It just makes me want to. Yeah, it's everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I'll be there drinking on that Tuesday because we have drinks afterwards. So again, April 17th, North American Innovation Summit. One last time, I'll be there. James will not be there. Mm -hmm. um, next week, we will have a snippet from that event uh, that we'll be playing for you here on the podcast since James and I will not be together. And then the week after that, I think, is your cat. Yes, so I have a webinar on the Consolidated Order Trail of Cats that's on the 25th of April, uh, 10 o'clock New York time, 3 o'clock UK time. We've got speakers from uh, the head of the cat program, Morgan Stanley, uh, a guy, a lawyer who actually was part of the SEC team that wrote the cat rules in the first place, 
uh, and guys from uh, FIS as well, so it should be a really good discussion. So I'll be down in Raleigh drinking fancy southern beers back uh, at okay. that point. So. so I'll be working, and then you'll be... Uh, exactly. Yeah, good. <laughs> nice. Excellent. <sighs> All right. Get a hell, <laughs> So uh, come and join us these next couple of weeks. We've got some uh, good stuff, like I said, uh, from our actual events. We'll have some uh, good little snippets, just in case you can't either make it out to the event or listen into the webinar. We will have some extras for you on that. Until then, if you have any thoughts on ways that we can improve our events or some ideas that we can bring up, our line is always open. Email Brownie. Email Brownie, exactly. <laughs> all right. Have a good weekend, and see you all next week. Bye.